If you have your Bibles, you can take them with me, please, to Romans chapter 15. <clears throat> we are coming to the end of the book of Romans. We are somewhat, Paul here is giving a pre-conclusion conclusion. Did you follow that? <laughs> He's trying to sum everything up. And he does that by immediately in verse 7, therefore, right? When that term is being used, he's saying, okay, all this together, therefore, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. That's a big deal. We are to accept one another. We're eventually going to talk about the promises. We're not going to get through all this this morning. And all the Old Testament texts that are used in this context of verses 7 through 13. But we're going to, I want to pay attention specifically to the accepting. Accepting one another. MacArthur says it this way, and I think he's dead on. He says, accept the meaning of receiving something or someone to oneself with special concern. This isn't, I put up with you. Now, I am sure that during the work day this next week, you're going to be out there for 40 plus 40 hours a week. And you're going to be working alongside of somebody and you've learned to put up with people. How many say that's a true statement? It is. Some would say, well, that's because we're, they're not Christians. We put up with them. Well, Sometimes we put up with Christians, <laughs> right? The reality is, that is not what this is saying. We're not to just simply put up with people. We're to accept them. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, this is a positive acceptance. And Paul uses it, multiple times throughout the text. One of them is in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. The Bible says, When Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. How many remember Apollos? Who is Apollos? Apollos is a, possibly a, con well obviously he's a convert, right? Of Paul or maybe John. We don't know for sure every aspect of his life, but we do know Apollos uh, got excited when he got saved. How many of you, your life changed when you were saved? It's like, wow, this is cool. It talks in, in the book of Revelation about losing your first love, talking about when you were first born again, you were on fire for the Lord. That may or may not have happened, and the dynamics of that are different. I would say, don't think of that emotionally, because usually we do. But obviously, salvation impacted Apollos in a great way. And he went out and started preaching. And what happened? Scylla and Aquila <laughs> took him aside and said, Hey, buddy, uh, let's talk about this. <laughs> How many understand that? Let's talk about this. He, they didn't say, you heretic, get out of here. <laughs> right? They said, hey, let's talk about this. And so they took him aside. They accepted him. The text says it this way. They took him aside or they accepted. That's the same word there. And explained to him the way of God more accurately. We find it in Acts chapter 28. Paul was shipwrecked just off the coast of Malta. The natives, the text says it this way, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain they had, that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and accepted us all, received us all. This has the idea that they lovingly took us in. We see that lovingly with Priscilla and Aquila. We see it also now with the natives in Malta. 
One other is in Philemon chapter 17. That's a fantastic book, by the way. In the word Paul uses in imploring Philemon to lovingly take back his running, runaway slave Onesimus to accept him as you would me. The idea was Onesimus was a slave, was a slave of Philemon. And Paul was imploring Philemon, listen, he's run away, but accept him back. In essence, here's what he's saying, don't kill him. He had a right to in that culture. But accept him back, take him back lovingly. In this text, the apostle gives an infinitely greater illustration. And we'll talk about that soon here. But the text says, just like it does in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, he who receives, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Therefore, to accept one another is to accept whom? Christ. Which ultimately accepts God. When you do this to the least of these, do you remember that? Same, same principle. He is calling on all Christians to accept one another in the fullest and deepest sense to treat each other with love and respect and understanding. If the per and, and, and then he goes into this purpose or reason why we do this or the motivation behind why we... By the way, should we accept everybody with loving arms? Yes or no? Listen, that includes... Mr. Schumer, President Biden, Governor Walls, let's just be honest, that's hard to do, but it's commanded by Scripture. Accept them. Then, and he says, not only do we to accept one another, how and why, how are we supposed to accept them in love? We know that. We've seen it positively throughout. we just give you a bunch of examples. But now he says, why? Why, do we do, why should we accept them? And the text makes it clear. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. I'm telling you, verse 7 is dripping with theological truths. There is so much in verse 7. Why? Because Christ accepted us. Well, that's true. He saved me. But I wasn't like that guy. Yes, every one of us were. Are you saying that I was as bad as Hitler? Yes, you were. You were an enemy of God, apart from Him, and without hope in this world. That's what the text says. But we have this idea, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Many times. And we look at others and say, well, you... What if Christ had your attitude, you wouldn't be here. Because without Christ, you would still be. And without His loving you, despite who we are, we would be apart from Christ without hope in this world. You see, the world is no different than what we were. And Christ accepted us despite that. If you want to know how ugly we were, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Literally called spawn of Satan. It doesn't get any worse than that. But Christ accepted us despite that. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I would have been in a church all my life. That might be a problem. Because you think... You're okay. Just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're okay. 
Matter of fact, just being in a church and you think you're okay, it leads to what's called pharisaicalism. Amen. And I tell you what, when Christ was on this earth, where did he go? I saw a post recently, and I, I don't remember the exact reading, but it said something like this. It said, Jesus Christ didn't go and eat with sinners and publicans uh, to love them or to embrace them or accept them. It's to tell them the gospel because they need it. Well, there's some truths in that, but that's really a very poor way of expressing it. Is it not true? Why did Jesus sit down with publicans and sinners and eat with them? Because he was going to accept the very people he was with. Because he wanted to love them, accepting one another. I mean, that's the last place. If you want to get up at higher ranks in the religious realm, that's the last place you want to be, is with publicans and sinners because they taint you, right? That's the bad and wrong attitude. God has placed you in this world to rub shoulders with the unsaved. Why? To show them how good a person you are? No. To show them how great a God you serve. Do you see the difference? Once focused on self, once focused on Him. Be thou my Oh boy, I'll say it again. Be thou my vision. I tell you what, I'll be honest with you, I'm not an emotional guy. But listening to the church sing that song made me shiver this morning. If all of us were... Uh, totally visionizing Christ and Christ alone in our work week, how much would we love the sinners? How much would we accept one another? If God did that for you, what can He do for others? You know how bad you are. We just don't like to talk about it. So we do this, we accept one another despite who they are. We accept one another just like Christ accepted us. So just like he did it, and he, he did it over and over and over again. He went to the, to, to the publicans, he went to the, to the sinners and the, I, I picture this and I know it doesn't say it in the text, but the way I picture it is he went into the bar, sat down with them and loved them. Then, he took 12 of them, one of them, knowing he was a dork, and loved them despite it. Do we love others or do we have an air when we're around others, thinking we're better, more important? That air doesn't belong in Christianity. There's no place for it. We are to love others just like Christ loved us. If we don't have the right view of us, then we won't understand this text at all. Read Ephesians 2 and you'll have the right view of who we were. That's why well, he actually wrote it. So therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. For what reason? For what reason? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. It has gotten so bad in our churches that I, I, I remember being in a church and this, this, this guy became a missionary to the Indians out in South Dakota. And he went out there and he, he came back to the church and proud, this big chested guy stood up and said, 
I led a thousand people to the Lord when I went out there. I did a great job. And, and I'm not kidding. That's exactly what took place. Where's God's glory in that? Now, praise the Lord, we should be out there giving the gospel. Amen. But the reality, every single person who comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is because God called them to that salvation. If you didn't manipulate them, God called them. God's got to change the heart. And God changed your heart if you're born again. Amen? And people might want that change of heart. Therefore, share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to this earth. God came to this earth. Died for your sins. They're already paid for. That if you would simply trust and obey, or have faith in Christ, you will have eternal life with Him. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Have faith in Him. You can have eternal life. You can be a child of His. For what reason? For the reason of God's glory. Verse 8. This is where we get into the, most, the more difficult parts of this text. For I say that Christ has become a, a servant to the, un, to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. Now, that verse all by itself, how many could understand where someone would say, the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ? Absolutely. And there were many promises given in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen? He was talked about Adam and Eve. Eve was in the garden. And, and by, the Bible says he will, he, Satan will bruise his heel and he will bruise his head, right? Who will bruise the head of Satan? Jesus Christ. When did he do that? The cross of Calvary. You ever seen, if you've never seen this, ask Mr. Gaiman. He would probably love for you to come over to his house and cut off some chicken's heads. This is one of his favorite pastimes. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but the reality is, when you take a chicken, now he's got cones that fix this, but the cones still vibrate. When you cut off, cut off a chicken's head, what happens? Man, if you let them on the ground, they could literally run around your house without a head. Literally. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no head. But they flop, flop around unless you have a cone. Mr. Gaiman lovingly calls them the cones of death. But, oh, the cones of silence. My bad. But the reality is that is what has happened to Satan. He's been bruised in the head so badly, he's just flopping around. But he's still flopping around, roaring seeking whom he may devour, according to the text. But the reality is, we are to glorify God in that, and, and Christ became a servant to the circumcision. What is that circumcision? Well, who's that talking about? He's talking about Israel. Let me ask you, are you of the circumcision? Well, practically speaking, maybe so. But principally, that's talking about Israel, and I am not Israel. How many understand that? When they talk about the circumcision, they're talking about the lineage of whom? Abraham, who was very clearly, it was very cool back in Romans. This is where it's all conclusion. Back in Romans, the, the Bible says, Paul says, listen, remember, circumcision isn't equal to righteousness. Because Abraham was considered righteous 14 years before he was circumcised. So don't go into that stuff. Amen? It's not about that. 
Circumcision was being part of the covenant with God. The covenant with what? Israel. Israel's covenant. What is Israel's covenant? We just read it during our opening service. Amen. I read you, that's one of probably 15 of them throughout the whole Old Testament that say the same thing. Israel's going to get their land back. Amen. The church is going to be out of here. Amen. We're going to be taken, not through the tribulation, but outside of the tribulation. We'll be taken before the tribulation, we believe. And we will be with Christ in heaven. By the way, and so will we ever be with Christ. Because after the tribulation comes what we know as the what? The millennial kingdom. God will come down and step on the Mount of Olives. I, I, tell you, I had a guy said, well, you just don't give me enough scripture. What do you do with Jesus Christ and stepping on the Mount of Olives and crushing it and splitting it and all that? What do you do with that? Oh, that's all allegory. It doesn't mean anything. It means... What you're saying is it means whatever you want it to mean. No one has given you the authority to say that this text means something than what it means something different than what is actually literally saying. No one gives you that authority to do that. This is where I get a little frustrated with reading these guys this week. I'm going to understand that. I mean, everything was allegory, allegory, allegory. allegory. As a matter of fact, I had a guy last week say, "Well, the whole testament's allegory." I don't even know how to answer him. I don't know how to answer that. If the whole Old Testament is allegory, then why in the world study it? Because it's whatever you get out of your thumb of what it means. The sky's the limit. That's not what he's saying here. It's not at all what he's saying here. He's saying, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. What is it? Christ has fulfilled that he is alive and well and the Messiah. He's born. You can't have a kingdom without a Messiah. Amen. You've got to have a king. What did nearly every single Israelite think of the Messiah coming? What did they think of? Here's what they thought. Messiah is a guy that's going to come from the priest from the kingly line of David. He's going to become king and we're going to be free from Rome and all oppressors forever. I'm excited about that. What they didn't know. And by the way, that's what some messianic some, not all. That's why messianic Jews there are a couple of different stripes, a few. Many of Israel did not understand that the Messiah was going to be God in the flesh. They had no idea. They certainly did not understand that he was going to die on the cross. They didn't get that. They didn't understand. But they, what they did understand from the whole Old Testament was, he is going to rule and reign. Amen. There will be a millennial kingdom. God promises it. This is where it gets a little difficult. Listen closely and follow along. Servants to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. Oh! He is saying right here, whatever I told Israel is going to come to fruition. Because we have a truthful God. Just like there will be a millennial kingdom that the Israelites will be able to enjoy. Amen? There is going to be salvation that the Gentiles can enjoy. Because it's promised, both are promised by God. Praise God for that. And we find it in this text. The circumcision. I was a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. This was step one in the confirmation of what I promised to Israel. Amen. Let me ask you. Does God write the truth of the gospel on the heart of the believers? Yes or no? Absolutely. Do those believers include both Jew and Gentiles? Yes or no? 
Amen, yes, there's where the continuity is. But there's also some discontinuity. God promises over and over and over and over and over and over again the literal kingdom in Israel with the Jewish people. He literally says he's going to save 144,000 from amongst the tribulation period. And all of them, somebody say, how many have ever heard, well, do you know who those 144,000 are? How many have heard that? If you talk to any eschatological person, they'll tell you, yeah, I know what it is. It's, it's, it's America. Oh, oh, I know what it was. It's, it's those that really are saved. How many have heard a plethora of descriptions of who the 144,000 are? Do you know who they are? Yeah. There's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Do you know why I know that? The Bible says so. It's not up to me to change that. And if it is, I'm an arrogant twit. Literally. Just, it ticks me off. I don't even know what that means. So, It's just wrong. It's dead wrong. We don't change the Bible to, to fit my mind. Oh my, would that be bad. But the church is doing it all the time. So he says, to confirm the promises. It doesn't say to fulfill all of them, does it? No, it's confirmed. Listen, I told you I was sending someone. I'm sending somebody. Here he is. We now have a king. Israel would look at it. We now have a king. But think of what they thought after A.D. 30, 30 or 33. After what we would call Easter... Resurrection Sunday. What do you think the Jews thought then? You lied. You're not sitting on that throne. You're not, you're not, we do not have, well, at that time they did, but our temple, forever peace, none of that happened. You're a liar. Would that be fair? Based on their thinking, that would be fair. But here's the reality. It still hasn't happened. So the very fact that it still hasn't happened does not negate the fact that the Jewish people view God as a liar in a sense. Or it's all allegory. We can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. The reality is Jesus Christ confirmed, established, fulfilled some, not all, of the promises of the Old Testament. We need to understand that. He did come, he did die, he did and is saving sinners from hell. Amen. Now, on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, that's the patriarchs, we understand that, right? Now, and for the Gentiles, okay, hold it, what did he just do? What did he just do when he says this? And for the Gentiles, what did he just do? He just said there are two peoples of God. Did he not? A covenant theologian will say, no, 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 no. There's only one people of God. I want to totally destroy that biblically. And I think we're going to see it this morning in the text. I don't know if we can get to all of it, but here we go. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. Okay, so not only do we find that in the Old Testament there were promises. Now let me ask you, were there promises to the Gentiles and to the Jews? Yes or no? Yes, there were. And we're going to see them right now. He first of all talks about the promises to the circumcision. Let me ask you, are the, are the circumcision a people of God? Yes or no? Absolutely. Now he's changing direction and say, okay, now, not only was it to the circumcision, but he also has done this for the Gentiles. He says it right there. And for the Gentiles, it was hilarious because I was reading this guy and he was saying, yeah, see, we're just, these are just, 
He did it for this and this. They were all the same people. They were all one people. And I don't know where these commentators get it, but they, some of them believe that there was a difference between the two. Well, duh. And then they go on and say, well, it's wrong because of this and this and this. Listen, it says it in the text. It says it in the text. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. What about His mercy? Well, I will tell you one thing about His mercy. You have been brought by God to Christ. That's something different than has ever happened before. Before you had to become a what in order to be a relationship with God? You had to become a Jew. You cannot read the Old Testament and not understand that. They were proselytizing to become Judea, to become part of Judaism. You had to be a Jew. Now it's not that way. Why? Because Christ died for our sins. And we both need to trust in Him. And now, it isn't just becoming a Jew. It's becoming a people of God. In essence, you can say this. Chap- verse 8 is talking about the people of God, the Jewish people. In verse 9, it's the people of God, the church people. That includes both the Jews and the Gentiles at this time. But there's still a little problem, and that problem is there's a lot of promises that have not been fulfilled yet to the Jews. What do you do with that? And here's my answer. Is God a liar or not? That is the answer. And then he explains it. He said, okay, listen, guys. And here's the reason why this was written. This was written because the Jews were pretty ticked off of the Gentiles because the Gentiles weren't following their traditions which we talked about last week. So there's already a conflict. The Jews think they're greater. And here's what he says, okay. (laughs) Jews, listen to me, Paul says. Not literally, but that's what he's saying. For the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, I'm going to show you, here's what he's going to do. I'm going to show you from your Old Testament Bible, although he didn't call it the Old Testament part of the Bible, he said from your Bible, from the Torah, this is what you're going to learn. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. And I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with who? (laughs) Okay, hold on here. (laughs) If the church has replaced Israel, why in the world would he write it and bring it up again in the New Testament? O Gentiles, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. doesn't say instead of, in lieu of, or in replacement of. None of those words are in there. The text says emphatically, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. I will tell you this, verse 10 is obvious. There are at least two peoples of God. And again, praise the Lord, O Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise His name. (laughs) Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now I'll get to my notes. There's a lot. How many of you say, There's a ton there. Let me read to you some passages that are just so vitally important. <clears throat> and we'll explain the ones that are written in here also. 
All right. There's so much I want to get to today. <laughs> so why is he bringing up the promises to Israel? If this is a conclusion, he's bringing it up because of Romans chapter... Let's take it. Look there because it's really important. Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. In chapter 9 through 11, we find Israel, and this is so awesome, it just, uh, I could re-preach all of this. In Romans 8, what do we find? How many remember the golden chain? It's talking about election, right? Romans 8. There's no question about its election. I don't care if you're hyper-Arminian or hyper-Calvinistic. It does not matter. If you're a Christian at all, it is talking about election. Now, how you define that election might be different, but it's about election. Got it? Okay. Verse 9. Verse 9 is talking about how, how Israel was elected by God. By God's what? Verse Six and following, it was God's sovereignty. I mean, did it, was Israel just a great peoples? And God said, yeah, I think I'll grab that one. <laughs> no. What did he do? He called out Abraham and said, hey, you're going to be the guy. Right? Who did that? God. So God's sovereignty is absolutely at, at, the, at the point of focus here. Then in later in the verse, in verse 30, Israel then rejects their Messiah. Then we get down to verse 11, chapter 11. That's where I want to spend some time because I think it's really, really important. How long will Israel keep rejecting Christ? Is there an end game here? According to chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, this rejection of their Messiah is only temporary. Amen. Why is it then? Look at verse 11, and this is, where we're, this is really important. And I say then, they did not stumble. Who's the they? The Jewish people, Israel. They did not stumble as to fall, did they? In other words, they aren't losing everything, are they? They're not done with, are they? And what does Paul say? Of course not. May it never be. Absolutely not. And then he goes and explains it may never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God used the first peoples of God to bring about another peoples of God. See that? That's what he did. It's only by their falling away did the church even become a Organ, organism. That's the only way. I say then they did not stumble as to fall. The, the, the Jewish people didn't, aren't completely off the map, are they? May it never be. It was their transgression. It was Israel's transgression that salvation came to the Gentiles. And then, for what purpose? To make the Jews jealous. Who wrote this? God, via Paul, right? This is God. He said, they are fallen away for a part time because I'm going to make them jealous through you, the church. Now, there comes a very pertinent question. How in the world is the church today making the Jews jealous? not happening. God will do something. I don't know what that is. To be honest with you, I think the rapture has something to do with it. They're gone. We're out of here. Oh. But that's opinion. Okay? I can't say that's what it is, says verbatim of Scripture. <sighs> 
But by their transgression, by the Jewish transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. If Israel doesn't matter, why is God worried about making them jealous? If the church has replaced Israel, then what's the point of this jealousy? There's no point to it then. Let's keep going. But, okay, I'm sorry. Now, if their transgression is the riches of the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. Now, I will say this, I have not studied all this term throughout the whole scripture, but from what I understand, the word Gentile is also translated nations and anybody who's not a Jew, frankly, throughout the scripture. It's important because what he's saying is, I came not only for the Jews, although I did come for the Jews, I also came for the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your eternity, you have no hope. And I will tell you, the badness of America isn't what's worse for you. There is something far greater, and that's eternal separation from God and His people and eternal damnation in a hell, the Bible says, where the fire is not quenched. There is a real heaven and a real hell. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. That's not my words. That's not my opinion. That is what the text of the scripture says dogmatically. So don't fight with me. Fight with the text. I guarantee you, you will lose. But he goes on. He says, listen, the transgression is riches for the world. How is the Jews transgressing great for the world? Because salvation is now given to us. Apart from becoming an Israelite. Amen? Apart from becoming a Jew, salvation now is given to us. So if their transgression, their failure is riches for the world and their failures is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Oh man! If salvation is because of their bad stuff that Israel did, our salvation is because of that. How much greater will their fulfillment be? Oh, 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 oh! There's a fulfillment coming. Do you see it in the text? There's a fulfillment coming and it's going to be blowing away what we are experiencing now. If there's a fulfillment coming, then how in the world... Can anybody say Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection has fulfilled all the Old Testament? That cannot be true. That is an absolute false because there's something greater coming. And Romans 8 or 11 tells us there's something greater coming. Their fulfillment. I would argue that fulfillment is what? The promises he gave in the Old Testament that I read this morning. The millennial kingdom is on the horizon for Israel. Why? Because God is not a liar. He is merciful and he is truthful. And it's interesting. Do you see? He says he's truthful with the, the Jewish people. 
and he's saying he's merciful to the Gentiles. He's making that distinction. Now, some people say, well, he's merciful and, 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 and uh, truthful all the time. Well, that's true. But why did he se segregate those from the Jews? He said truth to the Gentiles. He said mercy. Here's why. Because the Jews were his first peoples of God. Chosen specifically, given a job, given a responsibility, and also given promises by God. His mercy, we, in, in one sense, we can say, praise God for Israel's sin. Because by that sin, I too have been made righteous. Amen? I've been made righteous. He says, how much more will their fulfillment me? But I'm not speaking to you who are Gentiles as much then. I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, he does it again. What will the acceptance be but life from dead? We're preaching Romans 15 now, not 11. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Cranfield is one of the authors that he sees this distinction and he says, the Jews should glorify God for his covenantal faithfulness. But in actuality, only the Gentiles are glorifying God for his covenantal mercy. I think he's on to something here. I don't know that I agree with that statement totally. It's not the inspired word, amen. But he's getting to the point. He's saying that, listen, God is truth. He's promised Israel a kingdom. There's going to be a kingdom. And now, Gentiles, he's mercifully allowed you to become a child of his also by his mercy. By putting your faith and trust in Christ, you will not see eternal death, but eternal life with the Father. So this other author, I'm not going to give you his name because I totally disagree with him. <clears throat> But here's where they're coming from. Christ became a minister of the circumcision to confirm the promises to the fathers and so the Gentiles would glorify God on behalf of His mercy. And the question is, which one is it? And then he goes on to express that, in essence, all of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ and so now there are no longer there is no such thing as peoples of God. There is just a people of God, and they're all one. They're all the same, no, none, and totally dismisses the promises to Israel. Totally. And how they do that is they allegorize that. Well, coming to the land really means coming to Jesus. Now, I don't know that they say that, but they allegorize it. They, they change the words to fit what they want it to say. The purpose clause, which is what this is, relating to the Gentiles is in verse 9. But it's grammatically, it's super, it's difficult. The fulfillment of the promises to the fathers does not exclude, this is, this is a covenant theologian, the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers. He's saying the only fulfillment, the only promise that was given to the Jews was Christ. Now, is that a fulfillment? They say it's the only fulfillment, and therefore, that fulfillment is realized by not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. How many get it? That, that's what they're saying. The problem is, if God is truth, what do you do with the land? What do you do with the temple? What do you do with the king? Here's what they do. Let's, should we read on? Are you confused yet? 
How many can see I had a bad day week? Here's the reality. There's a verse in here, and I'm going to jump ahead, and we're going to get back to this next week. Lord willing. Lord willing. Romans chapter 15. Let's get back to our text. Okay, verse, verse 12. Look at verse 12. There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, when we look at that term rule, how do you view rule? Let me ask you this. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, did you understand that you are now ruling? He's ruling you. There's a rule there. There's a, there's a king there. Let me ask you, is that true, the Lordship of Christ? Yes. When you hear rule, do you hear salvation or do you hear millennial kingdom kingly rule? How many see the difference? From what I understand from this author and many others, they are viewing rule as salvation. It's the salvation that they're talking about. And therefore, Israel and the Jews, or Israel and the Gentiles are both saved, and so they are both under the rule of Jesus Christ. And, and there is an element of truth there. But there's also a mistake there. Is it not true that I have shown you through Romans there is a distinction between Israel in the church. Absolutely. And that there is still a fulfillment according to chapter 11 for the Jews. Yes. Then all of this cannot be that it's equal. There is some equality there, but also there is some unfulfilled promises there. How many understand that? And this text tells you. Now, we are out of time. That went quick. Here's the reality. We will get to more, Lord willing, later. But the reality is this. Do we have a merciful God? Why would you say He's merciful? Let me give you a song lyric that will help you. To save a wretch like me. That is mercy. Amen? Praise God for His mercy. But on the same token, God is not only merciful, but He's also truthful. Or there's a better word maybe, He is faithful in what He says. So let me ask you, if the Old Testament prophecies concerning the kingdom are literal as it's written, the 10, 15, whatever there are of them. Would God be faithful if he replaced Israel with the church? No, he would not. He said it. He promise, promised it. It has to come. If, and that's why I've said these, I hope you follow very clearly because these are distinct. If God is faithful, and He absolutely is, and what He was saying in those texts is there will be a new kingdom, Christ will reign on this earth from Israel, all things will be perfect in the millennial kingdom. If that is true, and I believe it is, that proves His faithfulness. If it's not, then who is God? The same thing goes with us as Christians, as a new peoples of God. Did God promise you everlasting life to use the text itself? Absolutely. Can He be trusted? Absolutely. 
because that's what it said. What's the difference? If God told Israel, there's a coming, a future kingdom where I will reign. We can spiritualize that and say that's all about salvation. Or we can say it says what it says, and therefore it's coming eventually, because God is faithful. If that's true, which I think it's very clearly true, your salvation is guaranteed by God. Because He's faithful and true. It is Him that is keeping you saved. It is Him that has called you to be saved. It is Him that will persevere you to the end, amen, as the text says. But it's Him. Everything is based on His mercy and His promises. Praise the God, we don't have a fickle God. Like open theists scream, we have a sovereign faithful, trustworthy God that is perfect in every way and holy. Amen? Praise be to God. I have tried my best to give you text after text after text because this text that we're in in Romans 15 is very clear and understandable only if you believe that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, where there is continuity between them and discontinuity between them. If those are true, and I believe they are, this, te this text is a slam dunk, home run for that truth. And it should encourage you, God doesn't change His mind. He loves you and will continue to love you. Amen. Even when we were sinners, a wretch, which comes back to the first part of the text, doesn't it? Verse 7, accept one another. Why? Jesus saved you. He accepted you. Accept others. You are never more like Christ than when you treat others as Christ treated you. Ooh. That goes right to the heart, doesn't it? How are we accepting those that seem to be unacceptable? Jesus did when he saved me. Be more like him. He's, he's telling you that's the mark of a Christian. That's what he expects. Folks, if you're sitting here and do not know anything of what I was talking about today, I am so sorry for you. But I will tell you this. Jesus said, Call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. Your eyes will not be opened. Your heart will not be opened unless, you, unless God opens them. And when he opens them, you see the truth. I am a sinner in need of a Savior because I cannot have eternal life based on my good works because I stink. I'm rotten to the core. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one way that there's true freedom, and that's in Christ. Otherwise, you will be a slave to yourself and sin. And if you're a slave here, you're going to be a slave there. A slave to an endless, the Bible calls it lake of fire, where moth and rust are totally consumed and your body is not consumed, but the pain is ever there. The Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. It might be the last time. You might go home right today and instantly a car hits you, 
blindside in this world, anything can happen like that. A balloon could sit on your car. The reality is, your days are numbered, but now is the time of salvation. The opportunity ends. And just think, well, I've got time. My great my grandmother thought she had well she she was a believer but I saw her in the later part of her life she didn't know where she was who she was and it happens like that and you have no control it could be today or never but don't let it slip by trust in the lord and it with all your heart Lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Live for Christ, because that's your greatest desire as a believer. Then you will live well on this earth, but only then. Mr. Gaiman, can you close in a word of prayer, please? Please stand, we'll be dismissed after I pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you do not change and that we can rely on all you have revealed in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.